In today's episode of the Amon Wire podcast. Scholarship's not innocent. We like it to appear innocent frequently, but I don't think that necessarily means that it is innocent. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Iman Wire podcast. Salim here from Iman Wire. We're continuing our series uh, today on uh, believers in academic spaces. For those of you who didn't get a chance to listen to the previous episode, uh, you can refer to episode 17 of our podcast uh, where we were beginning to discuss some issues in academics for Muslims. Uh, today, uh, we're honored to have a Muslim professor on, Dr. Elliot Bazano, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Lemoyne College. Uh, he teaches courses in, on Islam and comparative religion. Uh, he's author of numerous articles on a range of topics from being Muslim in the classroom to a series of articles on Ibn Taymiyyah. You'll find his articles in the Bloomsbury Companion to Islamic Studies, the Encyclopedia of Global Religion, as well as the Encyclopedia of Muslim American History. He serves on the steering committee for the study of Islam section in the American Academy of Religion. And he also writes for the Wabash Center blog, Teaching Islam, and is also a fellow podcaster. In fact, he hosts a podcast entitled uh, New Books in Islamic Studies, where he uh, discusses uh, new books in Islamic studies with their authors. So I want to welcome uh, Dr. Bazana to the, to the show. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome. Wa alaikum Thanks for having me, Muhammad. Alhamdulillah, we're glad to have you here. Um, before we, I guess, dive into some of the topics that hopefully we can cover, pick of believers in academic spaces, uh, if you could, perhaps, uh, I'm sure listeners would be interested to, to learn a little bit about your background, especially about how um, your faith led you into this career, in fact. Maybe we could start with a little bit of that, how your background played a role into where you are today. Sure. As I've been telling people, Recently, I had this, I don't know if I'd call it a revelation, but sort of a way of reframing things. Um, I converted to Islam when I was 18. Now I'm 34. And what I've been telling people is that, you know, I'm still about like, I'm like half agnostic, half Muslim. And what I mean by that is that the first 18 years of my life didn't just poof, disappear um, when I converted to Islam. And the way thinking about that has helped me conceptualize my own biography, I think, in an interesting way, because I think part of what studying religion in academia does is it invites skepticism. And so I think actually that's one of the things that's always attracted me to studying religion in the academy is that it does invite skepticism. Yet at the same time, the probably the, the main reason I got interested in studying religion in college was because I became Muslim. So I kind of had these dual interests right from the beginning of starting college, both as a recent convert, as well as, you know, someone who enjoyed uh, questioning things and delving deeper and, you know, learning to question my own assumptions about things. So that was when I was 18 at Humboldt State University in Northern California. And then my, my path led me to study, uh, did my master's degree at Duke, and then my PhD at the University of uh, California, Santa Barbara, all, all in religious studies, and then focusing in Islamic studies for my graduate work. So when you were considering going to religious studies, would you say that as being a Muslim, was, what, what, was it influencing you to go into religious studies as, on, a, on a personal level that you thought like you could learn more about your own uh, Islamic faith, your tradition, or was there some other motivation? 
Yeah, the, the, the first thing, I think that was the primary motivation. So I converted to Islam the summer before I started college, which incidentally was three months before 9-11 in 2001. And I took a world religions course. And in, interestingly, um, I, my sister was a fifth year senior when I was starting my first year of college. And so, and we went to the same school. So she knew some of the professors and I was looking through the catalog and I was like, hmm, maybe I'll take this world religions course. And she was like, oh, that course is boring. I haven't heard, you know, good things about it or whatever. But I was like, no, it seems interesting. So I'll do it. And, and I still respect my sister's opinion. So it wasn't, I was like, you know, I, I, that's why I remember it, that she sort of advised me against it because I really valued her perspective. But yeah, so I took the course and I had never studied religion at all. My conversion experience was, I would say, less less studying and more talking with people and, you know, meditating and have my own having my own sort of internal experience. So having the opportunity to first formally study religion was was really exciting. And of course, I was I was animated by the types of experiences and curiosities that my conversion to Islam had had begun inside of me. You've talked about how um, early on in your in your career, or you you thought that by being a Muslim, or that it may have you may have thought it might have given you a special insight into the academic study of the religion. Uh, But then you you mentioned that that changed. What changed that? Yeah, that's something I, I think about a lot and discuss with my students. I think certainly. You know, a lot of people, I think we have these powerful life-changing experiences, whether it's, you know, converting or having kids, for example. And I think there's an inclination to think, well, now that I've done this thing, I know about it in context other than my own. And I think there's value to that. And, you know, like if you want to be an expert on you know, Canadian history, and you've never visited Canada in your life, then that could be a a problem. But just because you spent a week in Canada doesn't all of a sudden make you an expert in international relations. And I think there's a trap in that thinking. And so I think that was the trap I fell into was, was, oh, I've, I've connected deeply to this religion. Now I have some kind of transcendent insight into the nature of religion in general, which I think on one level, it, it's good that I fell into that trap because it, like, it got me interested in wanting to learn more. And so luckily, I didn't sort of stop there and remain just totally full of myself for the last 16 years. But at the same time, the more I studied religion, the more I learned that, you know, this is something that requires a lot of reading and language study and ethnographic kinds of work and really deep reflection and learning about religion and comparative religion is connected to but also distinct from having some kind of experience of you know the divine in your heart or something like that as you were you know pursuing islamic studies were there any expectations or concerns specific concerns that you had like in terms of pursuing academics as a Muslim? Well, I think 
I become more and more aware of this, that I'm, I'm a white man and I'm a convert. My name's Elliot. I, English is my native language. I don't have an accent. So I think, you know, naturally that's going to affect my journey and distinguish it from, you know, people that might come from a Muslim background in, or come from abroad, English is in their native language, et cetera. So various cultural things, you know, have always sort of made me feel at home in certain ways in academia. I mean, I would say just like the weirdness of academia itself has made me, I mean, less so now, but certainly in grad school, like got under my skin way more than any kind of desire to reconcile my my spiritual inclinations with my professional pursuits sort of mm -hmm. thing. Right. For those of us who may may not understand, what would you could you expound upon a little bit about the, what you say that weirdness of academia? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll on a positive note. I remember so my first year of graduate school at, at Duke, I took a course on Al Ghazali, and you know the famous Muslim theologian died in eleven eleven, easiest date to remember ever, and I remember. I just, I loved the seminar. I just loved reading Al-Ghazali and it was just like a wonderful experience and I really enjoyed doing the reading. But turning all of that reading and digesting it and putting it into seminar papers and learning how to speak the language of academia and use new words, that was difficult. That wasn't something that came naturally to me. Whereas I feel like my interests in these kinds of spiritual worlds and the marriage of the exoteric and the esoteric that Ghazali liked to talk about, that really resonated with me. And so, yeah, I mean, I think academia, it's, it's a guild. It has its own sort of expectations and norms, and you get socialized into that. And so for some people, it comes more naturally. But for me... Uh, I would say, I mean, as an undergrad, I would say what drove my interest in religion was like, it was curiosity and like having really exciting conversations with people. I don't think writing or like critically, well, yeah, I would say writing at least wasn't like my real strong suit as an undergrad. So that was a big wake up call in grad school. And yeah, it was, it was, but you know, these kinds, I mean, it was like traumatic in a way because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in this intense competitive environment and I feel so out of place. But I think that made me also work really hard and seek a lot of help. And my writing transformed a lot in that year as well. You've written about how you're, you've been pretty open about uh, being a Muslim uh, as a professor. Uh, and you've written uh, and about this description of the insider versus the outsider uh, in terms of, uh, in, for our perspective, for religious studies um, uh, in that, you know, can someone who, can someone understand a belief system or the actions of another person um, if they don't adhere to that system? Um, could you ex expand a little bit about this insider-outsider um, that, you know, that you've, you've written about? Yeah. So in my own experience, the, my sort of internal spiritual journey with Islam and my time in academia have been very intertwined. Like I said, I converted just a few months before I started college and then I declared a religious studies major 
And I took a lot of different kinds of courses, not just on Islam as an undergrad. So like, like the comparative study of religion became really interesting. And I would say also part of my uh, spiritual development and, and curiosity. So right after, I wasn't necessarily interested in religion so much growing up. Um, but definitely in college, you know, the, these doors opened and all of a sudden this was super fascinating to me. So like I said, I had this sort of, I think at the time, arrogant assumption that I had this special insight into religion, you know, because I had, you know, certain kinds of experiences in, in prayer or, or dreams or, or something like that. And so I think that I think there's a level of, I think probably we're never really like all the way inside or all the way outside of anything. And I see like, I catch myself saying things like that. That sounds so like lame on one level, but I think it's more true. Just like the more we learn about stuff and religion is a prime example, I think the more we realize we don't know about it. So to presume that, you know, we're some kind of, true expert, like with a capital E in a given field, uh, I mean, that might be true. And we know a lot more than other people. But at the end of the day, you know, our authority is is relative. Well, I think that also points to, to what you referred to earlier, that for our perspective, for, for being a Muslim, that's a very individual experience. It's not an authoritative, it's not, a, I mean, it's not a monolithic experience. I think sometimes in academia, would it be fair to say that it's felt that, I guess, the prevailing idea is that it's a disadvantage to be uh, an insider, if you will, that is, to, it's a disadvantage to be an adherent to that faith tradition, uh, undergoing academic study of that tradition of which you adhere to. Uh, on the flip side, or do we overestimate that? Do we overestimate that that this, uh, this idea of being an insider gives you um, a disadvantage or even an advantage, actually? Yeah, I mean, I think Islamic studies provides a real live case study for looking at this question. So like the American Academy of Religion, the the big umbrella organization for the academic study of religion in North America has its annual meeting. And if you go to the Islamic studies panels, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing here. It's my impression. I would say it's like 50-50 people who are... Um, you know, Muslim or come from Muslim backgrounds versus people that aren't Muslim. Um, but then, and I, I mean this in a serious way, even though it might sort of come across as like, all right, well, now you're getting back to saying like everything's liminal and we can't define anything. But I also think like, you know, there's a lot of people that study religion that don't adhere to a particular religion, but it's very clear that their study like moves them deeply and forms them as a human being. So one thing I often wonder is like, is, is the person that studies Islam and is deeply moved by Islam and, you know, people write about this and RJ McCarthy in his intro to translation of Ghazali, he talks about how studying Ghazali has helped him become a better Catholic in a very deep way. And, you know, and if we look at like a sort of stereotypical, like secular Muslim who, you know, might not feel particularly spiritually committed to the tradition, um, you know, I think this person might 
embody one kind of insiderness, whereas, you know, the Catholic priest might have another kind of insiderness. And I mean, like, I totally agree with what you're saying. It's like, at the end of the day, we all have different experiences. And I think it's tricky to sort of, you know, understand the politics of that in a public sense, because, you know, people are people are curious, and they want to categorize you. Well, and, and then we they connect experience with presumed agenda, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that's that's one of the things I wonder with my students. Um, I mean, I think I think by and large, like having four months to spend with a group of people is a is a good way to learn something in depth and you know challenge assumptions. And you know, if if after spending four months in my classes and you know doing an in depth study, students think that I'm trying to convert them then it's kind of like there's nothing I can do about that because that's that's not the experience that people have that, you know, show up and pay attention. Um, but I think you can't help it sometimes. You know, people just get this idea in their mind, oh, I know my my professor is Muslim, therefore I'm sure everything he says or does is his attempt to convert me. But I joke with my students too that, of course, I want to convert you, but I want to convert you to understand how semicolons work and how to compose an email properly and you know how to speak to each other politely you know my personal experience is that islam inspires me to do those things as well but that's probably not what students have in mind and that presumption of for example in a student thinking that oh my muslim professor is obviously not uh, is is not uh, objective in their uh, in teaching about a course on Islam or religion. I mean, that's not the type of question that is typically only asked of people who fall out of the quote unquote mainstream demographic, if you will. For example, like a, a white male uh, professor of who's Christian, Professor Christianity, they typically are not going to be asked that question, or that that question never arises. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think sometimes students are you know just like suspicious about religion um i mean i would say it, yeah i think in general sure yeah if you're if you're christian then you know for a lot of people that's just code for like normal um but so like at my institution it's a catholic institution um but i think a lot of the students you know they're not necessarily you know, committed to Catholicism more than, you know, sort of your average student. So I'm, I don't, I don't know that my students sort of religious background hugely informs how they, they think about the subject matter in my courses. I, I thought that it would when I first started teaching at my institution, but I've been, I guess in a way I've just been like, well, they're like normal 18 year olds. You know, some of them are committed to their traditions. Some of them could care less. Some of them, you know, are curious. And so, yeah, I think I think it really depends. So walk us through this a little bit, uh, if you will, your your classroom experience. So uh, as we said, you know, you're open about uh, being a Muslim and, and uh, you know, there's there's difference in, differences in what different professors do and how they disclose or if they do disclose their um their religious faith to their students. Some uh, will not, some, uh, some do. Uh, um, 
But so walk us through that with your students, because um, you have written that you make a point to disclose this in the beginning that you are Muslim. Why do you do that? And, and what do you think are the benefits or and or the drawbacks of that? Well, I think one of the benefits is is somewhat mundane. And one of, one of my colleagues that I wrote the the article Muslim in the Classroom with was was teasing me about this, but it's totally true. It's logistical. It's because I don't want to be interrupted in week three and somebody saying like super awkwardly, like, so Professor Bazano, do you like practice Islam? Are you like Muslim? And, you know, I'm to be fair to my students as well. It's it's very unusual of the hundreds of students that I've taught. There's really only been like one or two students that have sort of had that awkward moment. But it's been enough for me to think about how I might streamline the process. So I find by taking a few minutes at the beginning of the semester to say, I'm Muslim. And, you know, does it matter where we come from? Does it matter if we have a blank slate or not when we come to a religion? What are the stakes? It allows me to open up this larger avenue for talking about, you know, the the challenges of studying religion. So I try, and I think I increasingly get better at this, is not to draw attention to myself, but just to, you know, casually mention that, you know, this is, I, I face a challenge just like you do. And, you know, I'm, I'm on the other side of the classroom in, in a way. So sure, I've thought about it more and I have my degree in the study of religion. I have more practice. But at the end of the day, when you want to study something that invites controversy, like religion or politics or any number of things, I think it's worth reflecting on what do you bring to the table and how is that going to affect how you learn? And at the end of the day, it's a very individual kind of process. So I think that's why I've learned not to put too much attention on me because at the end of the day, I don't think that's super helpful for the students in terms of navigating their own process, which is what I'm really interested in helping them do. Like I'm happy to tell them, you know, if they want to like come and sit in office hours and they're curious about why I converted or something. I don't, I don't mind sharing that, but you know, I mean, I, my, I see my, my role as a teacher to, you know, help them navigate that process. So if I see that they're curious about that, I like having conversations with people. So that might lead me to ask them, you know, questions about what kind of background they have studying religion and do they find it challenging and things like that. Are you challenging your students themselves in how they see, um, say the layers of our different identities. So, you know, all of us, we wear different hats. Uh, we have, you know, racial, cultural, ethnic, you know, class. Uh, we have religious, All we all have these different types of identities. In, in that setting, to reduce you to just being a Muslim, um, it negates all your other, all those other hats you wear. Are you challenging your, your students to sort of rethink that approach, to understand there's a different layers to everyone, different layers of their identity and, that to just focus on one layer, you know, that's just not um, a clear, accurate indicator of that person's, you know, qualifications or that person's viewpoints. Yeah. And I think that, I think that, that, that understanding comes naturally from studying a subject in depth, right? Like we were saying, any, anytime you study something, you realize that 
it, it's not it's not monolithic. One of the things I try to communicate to students is that religions are discourses. These are these are things that you can never quite pin down. People disagree about them, and there's all sorts of different opinions forming that discourse. And yeah, I mean, I think I think students they know this internally, but I think going back to this idea of like intellectual or spiritual traps that we might fall into, you know, for whatever reason, whether we're brainwashed by the media or society or our, our parents or our egos or, or what have you, I think it's very seductive to simplify things and to see things in, in black and white terms. And I mean, not necessarily because we're malicious, but I think it's just like, you know, to use like, Quranic Islamic terminology, like the the nafs, like our our own sort of base ego is trying to get us to see the world in in ways that isn't actually helpful for us. And we know better than that, but we still get we still get sucked into these traps. So I think teaching students about Islam is a really ripe way to open these avenues of curiosity because I think students, they can't help but come into these classes with these tacit assumptions about what Islam is and who Muslims are. And it's like, they know it's not quite right, but that's the world they live in. So it's not like, you know, like fish in water. It's not like they can just like get out of the water. But I think they learn to understand what the water is and how it works and how they got there. And then then it's easier to see, you know, the the different layers. Right. In terms of your own approach uh, as a academic professor, um, in terms of how you say how you approach a text as an Islamic text, you you talked actually in one of your one of your articles, uh, you mentioned the the different types of the different types of approaches to the Quran that uh, um, the South African scholar Farid Ishaq describes. Uh, and one of the levels that uh, he mentions that you pointed out was the critical lover, um, this, the, the the one who's who's enamored uh, with the Quran, uh, but still um, will view the questions and ask questions of the text as, as a reflection of like a deeper love. So they'll be able to, you know, take these questions and may have some uncomfortable answers, but they'll be able to withstand that and that type of inquiry with with rigor actually will enhance and deepen that love. Talk about that in terms of how um, that example does that does that ring true to you in your experience as uh, in Islamic studies? The critical lover kind of approach. Yeah, right. I think so in general. I mean, I don't know. I think there could be an element of like the confused lover as well. That's not Farida Sox terminology, but yeah, I mean, I think. Getting back to this idea that academia is a funny space, I think it's not, I mean, so it's not just about being critical, but there's a whole capitalistic professional aspect of academia, which I don't think is good or bad on its own. It's it's part of the world and we live in the world and we need to make a living. But I think some of these aspects of capitalism and professionalization can, don't always, but can be at odds with, um, you know, what we might think of as spiritual ideals or goals. And I find it constantly weird that, like, that's 
in a way, that's just the nature of studying religion professionally is that you're at once, you know, seeking money. I mean, to be frank, right? That's why we do anything professionally because we want to earn, earn a living. Um, I mean, which also I think has, you know, virtual, not virtual, <laughs> virtu um, virtuous, you know, reasons behind it, like wanting to support your kids and whatnot. But, you know, like if you have a lot of money, it makes, makes your life difficult and not that professors have a lot of money. So that's actually a, an okay problem to, to have, but, but nonetheless, it's, I think it's, it's very hard to separate the process of like ego and self-recognition, uh, in a space that's very self-consciously focused on constantly professionalizing yourself. Right. And, and production and, and publication. Yeah. And I mean, like on one level, like how cool is that? That I mean, cause all right. We, we all face these, these challenges and struggling with our ego. So I'm grateful actually that I get to have a career where I can do something that I, I really enjoy and struggle with my ego in that way. Um, but just sort of metacognitively, it just seems so odd that, the very thing like practicing Islam or spirituality that could theoretically like set you free. It's sort of like another trap that you can fall into because it's part of this, this system which is connected to capitalism and, you know, intentions that might not always be in the best places. So speaking of this production or this academic output, there's this distinction between uh, descriptive scholarship versus the other um, side of things, which is like prescriptive scholarship, which I guess you could say would be what it should be I, I, in a way. Uh, you can probably explain these terms a lot better than I can. But I, in general, it's I would I'm assuming I'm making a broad statement here, but the descriptive type of scholarship is what seems to be what is held in favor because it's purely or considered to be purely more of an objective type of analysis and description of what uh, whatever the issue is at hand versus the prescriptive type is more of it, it can it can lead to that type of uh, confessional type approach where an adherent of a faith, for example, is is taking this the scholarship and and putting it out there and and saying this is how it should be. Could you talk a little bit about that um, and how that particularly is is pertinent to a, a Muslim professor? Yeah, no, I mean, I have, I think this is I say this like somewhat lightheartedly, but I'll I'll get myself in trouble if I'm not careful with my words here. If certain colleagues, I'll, I'll invite. I'll invite easy, easy disagreement, but that's good. I'll have fun conversations to have with people. Well, I mean, just uh, before, uh, just if I could interrupt you for a second, and I think it's, it, it's, it, I think it should be said that in in general, uh, people are criticized for being this type of prescriptive scholarship. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. I think it's it's fair to say as a general truth that religious studies favors descriptive scholarship over prescriptive scholarship. But again, and I think going back to Islamic studies as, you know, a point of inquiry, it, and so you brought up Farida Sak, and he's internationally known, he's published several books, and he's, you know, he's, 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 on, he's on a different level. And so you can, I think you have more leeway as a scholar, sort of the 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 higher sort of ranks or 
you know, the longer you, you spend in the field. And I think that's true with probably a lot of fields. Um, but I think, you know, if you talk to a lot of people that study religion, like, why do you study religion? I think, you know, they're like, they want to make the world a better place or they, they think that, you know, learning about difference can really like heal the wounds of the world. And that's, they're not necessarily saying that in their scholarship, but if you know that that's what animates them to do their job, then I don't think you can say that's objective. Um, I mean, just like imagine somebody writing about Islam who, um, like who voted for Trump and someone who didn't vote for Trump. Now, sure, you might not be able to tell whether or not someone voted for Trump based on the quality of their Islamic studies research, but you can imagine that, you know, people that voted different ways in terms of what's really animating their scholarship, they could have very different ideas about why it's valuable to study Islam. And so I think in that regard, there's a lot of sort of hidden prescriptive tendencies in, in, what, we, in what we do. And it's, I don't think it's always so easy to distinguish what's prescriptive from what's descriptive, because I think it depends how deep you want to dig in terms of like, not just what they say, but who's publishing it and why they're publishing it and where they're getting their ideas from and if there's any kind of political currency to the ideas. So I think one of the things Frida Sock says in the beginning of that book too is that scholarship's not innocent. And I would, I would largely agree with that, that we, we like it to appear innocent frequently, um, but I don't think that necessarily means that it is innocent, meaning, meaning like no agenda. Yeah, I think that's a lot of, uh, I would say, the frustration for a lot of, not even just Muslim, but a lot of religious communities, is that a lot of religious studies is, is under this guise of what we're calling descriptive scholarship with, you know, an unmoved observer, observer, if you will, but that the out, the output of it is actually, uh, much of it is advocating a lot of monolithic or normative ideas about what, what that religion is, you know, talk a little bit about that, because I think that's the frustration. I think for a lot, a lot of this has to do with how we approach epistemology, isn't it? I think that the frustration that I find in, in talking with some people who are in or around academics is that there's only a certain way or a certain approach that is considered the, the right academic approach, the, the right critical approach. You know, for example, like, you know, a lot of scholarship on Islamic studies um, in, the, in the West is by, say, non-Muslim non uh, professors, scholars. Um, a lot of that literature is based on that over hundreds of years. Whereas if another, uh, if a, say, if another Muslim professor or researcher starts looking into the body of knowledge in the Muslim world, uh, which, of course, is by, by Muslim researchers and scholars, there may be a pushback for that, for that person drawing from those sources rather than from uh, drawing from those purely Western sources. So is this really an issue about how, um, how we approach, approach the, this field in terms of epistemology? Yeah, and I think part of it too is like the, um, you know, the sort of symbolic capital of who you quote and who you cite in your work and which scholars you consider authoritative. You know, like in any field, you have your canon, 
And so in North American academic study of religion, there's a canon. Now, does it mean that people that contribute to that canon are the most expert people in that field in the whole world? No, not necessarily. There's, you know, there's lots of languages out there that most people don't know about and can't access. And so, yeah, ironically, one of the dangers of, you know, citing material outside the canon is that I think, like you're saying, it might be inherently viewed with suspicion. It's like, like the canon is safe in theory, right? So, so we think, so we should engage with the canon at least. And, you know, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a valuable performance though, to demonstrate familiarity with the canon. Like you, you know, the rules and then you can break the rules. And that's true in a lot of different activities, not just scholarship. So I think, and that's, that's a political act, I think in many ways as well. But I think, I'd be curious if there's studies on this idea in different fields with like insider outsider issues. So again, like I mentioned, just anecdotally looking at Islamic studies panels at the American Academy of Religion, it, it seems like there's, there's a, there's a balance between Muslims and non-Muslims. And now whether these people's identity informs their approaches or not is another question, but at least in terms of public space and, you know, these sorts of political um, assumptions and realities people are dealing with. I think Islamic studies, I mean, I think it's changing too. Like, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I think the, the, the room at Islamic studies conferences would, would have looked a lot more white. And I think that's, that's increasingly not not so true in 2017. You mentioned about you know being familiar with and being then being able to be critical of of the canon of say religious studies. Um, is that really a, a viable option for someone who is say a Muslim who can they can actually be critical of this canon of Western Islamic studies? My first thought would be that that would be almost career suicide, or potentially could be career suicide. Yeah, I mean, I think these these are very delicate questions, and it depends on the individual and what kind of institution they're dealing with. Um, I mean, I know, I know, I've I know stories, colleagues, friends, for example, who, you know, have been asked straight up in job interviews, like, "Are you Muslim? Are you a feminist? Like, what does that mean?" You know, and I mean, I think, like, you know, these are. These are quasi or completely inappropriate questions to be asking point blank in an interview, you know, oftentimes to minorities or women or, or people that might be, you know, conventionally disadvantaged in a job market being put on the spot all the more. So, but at the same time, and these are, these are very real and in no way am I trivializing these, these stories. On the other hand, I think I know a lot of people where, you know, their institutions, um, you know, they encourage them to write on theological topics. And I mean, this might be, you know, like working at Catholic or Jesuit institutions, you know, this, this could make a difference as well versus having a state budget that you have to contend with. And so there's different parameters. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just so many different kinds of institutions in higher education in the United States alone, just like thousands of institutions of higher education. So it's super fascinating for me to hear about everyone's stories and how, 
you know, somebody could have a totally different experience dealing with this, like, career versus faith question at one institution, as opposed to the another institution, you know, it might really be encouraged. And, you know, the person might, you know, teach their Islamic studies classes and publish in their academic journals and be very familiar with the canon, as it were, but then also be really involved with like campus ministry and lead meditation retreats and stuff like that. Um, so, so yeah, I'm afraid I, it's, I, yeah, like, I mean, it's like, there's just so many institutions, but I think you're right. It's certainly, um, there are certain situations where it could be career suicide if you don't navigate the terrain carefully. Well, and also to that point, also, I think, uh, for a lot of, uh, Muslims in the United States, uh, they, you know, there's certain, uh, academics, uh, Muslim academics who, who can or feel free to engage the Muslim community outside of their academic silo, um, while others others don't. So there's definitely a diversity there, and it's and from what I've learned so far, and is that it's it's quite very unique to I guess to each institution. Yeah, and I mean I'm I'm saying this as self consciously as as I can as as a white man, um, but I mean in my own process, I think you know like self confidence has can can play a role. I don't even want to say that that's the most important role because I think sometimes it's it's definitely not. Um, but I mean to bring it back to teaching, like I feel like my students are going to have a harder time accepting my authority if I'm coming across as nervous and not quite sure of myself. And so, you know, in certain ways just like experience and getting comfortable in your own skin, I think can can make a difference. But again, that's, that could, I could totally be blindsided by my own experience. And I know that that's not always true for other people. And obviously, you know, if self-confidence was like the magic ingredient to a successful career, then the world would be a different place. Um, but I think it, it can play a role. So a lot of, of, modern academic scholarship uh, is rooted in this idea of, uh, as we've already been discussing about this, uh, this criti- the critical academic or scientific approach. What would you say about the perception, at, particularly with Islamic studies, that uh, the, the, the critical analysis or the critical methods employed, specifically in Islamic studies, I don't want to generalize here, but for some, it's under the guise of scholarly approach, but it's actually the intent is to undermine. What would you say about that perception? Huh. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a history to that. And like Edward Said's Orientalism can help us understand that. And that the whole history of studying Islam in the Middle East, um, you know, by white people has very frequently had a political agenda. And so I think this idea that, well, we can just magically escape it. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a similar kind of difficulty that students face is, you know, just being aware that you're a fish in water doesn't mean that you're not, you know, surrounded by the water and that that's like consuming you. So I think it's, it's one thing to think, well, yeah, you know, there's this tradition in Western academia that seeks to, you know, demonize Islam and Muslims. And here I am participating in the system, whether I'm Muslim or not. And I'm totally free from that. 
and you know because I because I know better and I think it's it's more difficult than that I think you know there's there's all sorts of subtle influences pressing upon us constantly and it's it's tricky to know where they're coming from I mean I think I think there's a dual problem of assuming of like even dare I say like liberal academics assuming that mosques function in a certain kind of way that like makes academics suspicious. But I think similarly, you know, people that um, sort of like everyday Muslims, if you will, that don't know that much about how academia works might similarly feel suspicious about it. And I think one thing that, you know, is, is hard, it takes effort, but I think it has positive, it bears positive fruits is just like, you know, keeping, keeping your feet in these different spaces, whether it's community activism or mosque programming or, um, you know, super academic-y things. And, you know, it's not that these aren't separate spaces, but I think if you don't, if you don't make a conscious effort to learn about them and understand how they work, it's very easy to have these kind of naive assumptions about them that are, you know, for lack of a better word, seductive, but I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm always, it's surprised, but I guess I don't even know why I'm surprised since it, it happens so frequently when I enter these different kinds of spaces to see how there, there really is commonality, not sameness in terms of what, what goals are and why people care about religion. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, people I'll just go totally California hippie on you now, but you know, people just, they want, they want to be nice and they want to feel accepted and they want to get along with their neighbors. And, you know, I think these are, these are common human goals that these different spaces uh, value in different sorts of ways. But when we don't take the time to interact with and learn about these spaces, uh, it's very easy to become suspicious and like kind of assume the worst which is sometimes true, unfortunately. So obviously academic spaces are no different from a lot of other spaces in that uh, they are going to be affected by our current political climate. Could you talk a little bit about how you feel the current climate, I'm talking about specifically, say, the United States, is affecting or, 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 can, or may affect Islamic studies in, in academia? And then uh, also... If you could comment also about how you personally have have written about how authors, academic authors who write about Islam, they have to be to be sensitive to be uh, aware of the potential political implications of their work. If you could please explain a little bit about that and 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 why you feel that's the case. Yeah. Um, so in the teaching context, I think I mean I think students oftentimes. They assume that like 9-11 was this sort of huge turning point in terms of how people saw and demonized Islam and Muslims. And of course it was important, but you know, these perceptions, they they go a lot further back than that. And what what I wrote about in the the article about um, what what was it called? The post-Trump Islamic studies pedagogy, is that I think what what students appreciate is that the 
like it's important to be aware of the different kinds of media perceptions that are influencing their their minds but at the end of the day um understanding the tradition and like meeting muslims and reading texts and learning about people's stories and understanding how certain themes in the quran happen um obviously these things they're connected to the political context but i think it's like in the spirit of the liberal arts it also requires us to as much as possible kind of distance ourselves from what's going on in the world and dive into the material and just like soak up the material and the ideas that that come as a result and i think and it works both ways it's a symbiotic relationship but i think that sort of leaving the political concerns in the background sometimes can equip us better to confront the political concerns um almost like we like go through some sort of unconscious metamorphosis of sorts i think in the public sphere it's a lot more difficult because it seems like a lot of people aren't very interested in learning about stuff they just want to focus on these hyperbolic reactionary like flamboyant examples of you know so and so's latest political rhetoric and oftentimes i mean i i have so much respect for people like Reza Aslan for example who i might disagree with uh, quite sharply in many ways but just having the you know the the ability to just confront this you know media machine that wants you to sort of submerse yourself in the absolute absurd and then like talk about it clearly as if it makes sense i think that's such a hard task to do um you know i mean going back to the idea that we have as professors we have like four months to go in depth and have conversations and take our time learning about stuff and you know maybe you get like a 750 words to write an op-ed in the new york times and it's like what what can you say that like could be meaningful and so i i'm that's like my biggest reaction to thinking about how to deal with this political context in the public sphere is like it's just such a gargantuan herculean task and it takes a lot of practice and you have to have a really thick skin and it's hard but i think it's 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 super important because if you know if academics or people that know what they're talking about don't take these opportunities you know then you get people like the recently you know let go sebastian gorka you know telling people what they should think so it's kind of like there's sort of two unideal options but one of the unideal options is way better than the other one so i think it's a it's 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 a real it's a real value as islamic studies scholars to figure out how to navigate that terrain in some type of sane manner without like totally you know getting the blood sucked out of us <laughs> right so that's sort of interesting cuz and and you you mentioned how how we should take islamophobes seriously especially like these like some of the individuals you you began to mention who are just uh, really just blowhards and really have no grounding or knowledge of uh of really or scholarship in islamic studies and yet who are put on in mass media 
or even put into uh, political appointments or pushing this certain narrative about Muslims and Islam. It's interesting that you have said that people in academics, they need to to assert their um, authority beyond academia so that they can reach these broad audiences. Does that conflict with this idea of the this question of the descriptive versus the prescriptive scholarship? I mean, does the danger for an academic professor to, to go beyond academia into those broad audiences, is is that um, outweighed by the the benefit, the benefits of going outside into the public sphere and uh, discounting a lot of these narratives? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely there's a tension in these two sorts of endeavors. But I also think, you know, uh, an approach to, you know, the classroom or scholarship that, you know, you think is entirely apolitical, I think, I mean, that's, that's a political stance. And if you have to take a, a political stance that has some teeth versus something that is like totally watery, then I think it makes sense to, you know, choose the approach that has some teeth. But I think, and again, this is, you know, I think in some ways, maybe easy for me to say just because of my cultural context, but you know, I think tact has to be involved that I, I mean, I might say a political agenda I have in my class is that I want my students to be caring, compassionate, conscientious citizens in the world. And I mean, on the one hand, that sounds like super innocent. Who could disagree with that? But a lot of people, you know, that write about the purpose of higher education think that, no, that's not what it's about. And if you're concerned about your students' global citizenship, then you should, like, go back to your idealistic hippie commune and, like, go play with your unicorns or whatever. And so, I mean, I say it flippantly on one level, but these are people feel strongly about this because it goes back to this idea of descriptive and prescriptive. And I think there's a concern that if you aren't taking great pains to preserve this descriptive space, then not only are you, are you opening the possibility for this maybe seemingly innocuous or positive thing I've described, but you're also opening the doors for people to do nefarious things. And so best, best to keep things neutral. But at the end of the day, you know, again, I'll, I'll emphasize this idea of tact is that we don't live in a neutral world. And so how we want to communicate that meaningfully as we guide students or the public through, you know, our various areas of expertise, it, it requires care. And I don't, I don't think that's a form of selling out. I think that caring about tact is you know, it means that you value your interactions with people and, you know, you want to be able to speak to your audiences and know how your audiences tick. And I think that's a good thing ultimately, because it helps us communicate with people more effectively. So along that line, uh, pretty recently uh, after the uh, the events in Charlottesville with the uh, the white supremacist, uh, the white nationalist and uh, what uh, took place in the University of Virginia, uh, interestingly, uh, in the Berkeley Forum, there was this uh, piece called uh, about uh, uh, the University of Virginia Religious Studies Department, essentially calling uh, or uh, or calling to lead the way in in uh, overcoming uh, 
hate and racism they put on a statement con- condemning uh, uh, the neo-fascists and uh, the uh, the neo-Nazis, and they said that this con- this condemnation is an expression of simple moral truth rather than a political statement, which I thought was quite interesting because it's going against what I think a lot of people might perceive the role of uh, someone in academia is, that they're taking actually, uh, it's very unusual to hear them use this language, that this is a simple moral truth. While while we may might believe that, for some in academics to say that, uh, is, is be unusual because typically we consider them to be not taking, say, a, say a moral a moral stance that it's typically it's 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 just an objective uh, an objective uh, analysis of of different ideas and in that same piece they they mentioned this this article by Marsha Chatelaine I'm not sure if I pronounce her name right but where she the the title of the article was how um, universities are emboldening uh, white nationalists and in that article she talks about some of the the pitfalls of the the modern academic approach in terms of say for example the use of uh, of the devil's advocate um, in terms of, so you have a, an idea, say, like white supremacy or white nationalism, uh, that, that being, that being a, a valid or, or a uh, intellectually rigorous idea compared to, say, you know, the opposite of that, or, or basically the idea of moral equivalency, moral relativism. What were your thoughts? I, I know you're familiar with this uh, recent statement by them. What were your thoughts on that, especially as it pertains to what we've just been talking about in terms of Islamic studies? Well, I think, you know, I think this gets into an area of definitions that's worth, you know, unpacking is the, well, what's the difference between a moral truth and a political statement? And I think, you know, I, 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 I don't know, I'd be interested how the authors of the article would, would define those things. Um, I think, I mean, a moral truth versus a political statement, I mean, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know. So, so I, I guess I mentioned that because I think that's like, again, going back to the frustration that, uh, say, a lot of Muslims, Christians uh, in this country, you know, there's certain sacred things in, in uh, Western academia or even in, in Western liberalism. This is one of those things that, that, that is sacred that, and, and henceforth they can make this statement that it's a moral truth. Whereas if it was talking about something in another aspect of religious studies, whether it's a certain uh, certain aspects of uh, Christian studies or Islamic studies, uh, that's 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 different. That's not that wouldn't be a critical approach. It's it, you can't say a, a certain truth, uh, a statement like that. It would be more of a of an opinion. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I think that's sort of the frustration I or I think that people could have by seeing something like this. While we're not, you know, it's I think we would agree that this is it's a noble idea to stand against, but is is a, is it opening up a potential Pandora's box or or is actually a, a good thing? I think you know, how do we how do we deal with a political context when we have an openly racist president in the United States? And I think you know, that's, that's a question that we're wrestling with. And, you know, then people are going to say, well, but then it's like, I think the issue of the devil's advocate, um, that, that's an important point because no, just cause there's, there's two opinions about something doesn't mean that they're, they're both like equally valid. Right. When, when people that experience racism define it a certain way, and then, you know, white supremacists want to say, well, no, that's not what racism is. Racism is something else, and none of us are racist. Like, those aren't equally valid perspectives. 
similarly, um, I show a clip in class sometimes of, of Bill Maher interviewing Keith Ellison um, about the Quran. And Bill Maher is telling Keith Ellison, he's like, here's this paraphrase from this other guy that says the Quran advocates violence against non-Muslims on pretty much every page in the entire book. What do you say about that? And then Keith Ellison's like, well, that's objectively not true. Have you read the Quran? He's like, I'm just citing what the experts say. What, is it just a bad translation? So he's, he's like, and you know, Bill Maher is one of these self-described liberals who's a total professional Islamophobe. And it, we're with this idea where he's saying, well, you know, we're now we're just disagreeing. Who's to say, you know, who's, what's true. And it's like, well, no, you can just like open up the Quran and there's definitely no translation anywhere in the world where it talks about harming non-Muslims on almost every page. That's like 51% or more, you know? So there's certain things where it's like, but Mar is one of those interesting examples because he's obviously smart, but it's like he's emboldened by his willful ignorance because all you'd have to do is just get a translation and check and either you're correct or you're not correct. Um, but he doesn't. So, uh, yeah, I mean, how to, I don't think there's an easy fix for that. I get, I have the privilege to watch students like transform slowly over several months or years and I watch them struggle, but you know, how do, how do, how do we get these public figures who are thriving on their, you know, demagogic political agendas to just like change their minds. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, obviously. So do you think this issue of moral relativism, this moral equivalency, do you think that this is uh, the result of a systematic issue in, in academia and in, in how we, we teach, for example, that the devil's advocate idea? Do you have, you, by necessity, you, okay, let's have a, an alternative, an opposite viewpoint that um, for the sake of being a devil's advocate and, and they're held um, in the same regard or the same intellectual, both intellectually rigorous, I guess you could say. Um, is that a problem that is, that is rooted in how we are teaching in, in our institutions? Or is this something where, uh, say, the political or the, the social elements are, are informing that in terms of how we're, how we're learning and teaching? Uh, so do you mean like, is it, an is it an institutional or larger social problem when people feel comfortable making these kinds of arguments right like or is it or is it something, that, or something yeah or is it something that is that academia is also at fault of, of for for propagating this idea of of, of moral equivalency or uh, a lot of these things in in postmodernism yeah i mean that's a huge question i think it's a it's a chicken and the egg kind of thing where i think it's probably you know influencing yeah Mind blown. I think, I, I guess I will say one thing that is sort of indirectly answers it is that, you know, at the end of the day, like you have these different systems and there's competing truth claims, whether we want to think of like Christianity as a tradition or Islam as a tradition or, you know, modern Western liberalism as a tradition. Um, if we, if we attempt to boil down 
you know, certain types of claims, then these things aren't always going to be compatible with each other. So I think, but I, I think, you know, this is, that's obviously a human problem and it's not new, but I think, I think there's, there's two things I'll say about that. Um, one, that's not a good reason to avoid inquiry. However, I think it goes back to the question of tact is that just because you can investigate something doesn't mean that you should or that it's valuable. And I think if I can make a connection between how I've attempted to stay sane as an academic over the years, I think, you know, do, do people have some type of like life affirming, love giving, contemplative practice in their life that, you know, gets them out of their head and, you know, connect like does some kind of right brain or heart based sort of thing. And I don't think that's not the kind of thing you can figure out in an argument that has to, that's like, you know, that has to do with your upbringing, what kind of people you're around, what kind of experiences you might've had in your life. But I think politically speaking, at least on, you know, the right or the left, I think that's, that's one of the traps that people get into is that the argument becomes sort of an end game and, you know, people lose the, the value of internal personal, like in, energy had to like use, uh, sort of spiritual Islamic terminology. And it doesn't mean that that's like the magical solution, like just meditate more and then you'll be more politically effective. But I think, I think it's important and that, um, you know, it's you, it's hard to sustain like the political drive if there's not some kind of inner inner force like keeping you connected to what's important. And so, if if the game of like the devil's advocate becomes an end game in itself, I don't know what kind of you know moral lesson that is for humanity. Mm. Uh, as a final question, uh, you've written about. Um especially uh, uh, when you're talking about uh, uh, Islamic studies and our approaches in this current political climate. You talked a little about um, the importance of building narratives um, as opposed to, you know, a lot of times right now we're all a lot, especially with the current um, the political climate, we're in the business of uh, constantly uh, on defensive, uh, challenging challenging the narratives or challenging the um the claims made about uh, Muslims, about African Americans, about uh, Latinos, about every you know all sorts of communities. Um, but you've you've talked about the importance of of not just challenging that, but also the importance of building our own narratives. Um, as we close here, uh, talk a little bit about why that's important and your advice uh, for for Muslims in that regard, in in how to to build those narratives. Yeah, I think that's it's a really like profound question and something that I I think about daily in my personal and professional life. And I think um so I'll 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 give an example is when I was in the Muslim Student Association at the University of California Santa Barbara throughout graduate school, I noticed I noticed a trend which is these Islamophobic demagogues would would come to speak like David Horowitz and Dennis Prager, Daniel Pipes. Um, and, you know, it would draw a big crowd and it would draw all sorts of protests. 
And in terms of like campus culture, I, I found these events interesting. Um, I don't know if I want to say productive, but thought, thought provoking and thought provoking things lead to thought provoking discussions. So that has its own kind of value. But, um, you know, what I found though, is that, you know, these are, it was only when this like hate and, you know, epistemological violence came to campus that people got riled up and that makes sense, right? When people are throwing stones at you, it's hard to like stay asleep and you're going to like want to do something about it. Um, but what I also found is that, you know, the campus groups and the Muslim Student Association included that they would have other kinds of events, which they weren't sort of politically focused at all. It was like, come to this event and break fast with us. And we're going to talk about why Ramadan is beautiful and how fasting can be like an incredible spiritual practice for people. And those events would, I think, draw less people. But then it's like not about the quantity. It's about what kind of message is being conveyed. And I think oftentimes these high profile um, reactionary kinds of events, it's, you know, going back to like how to talk about Islam in public, it's often this very shallow, superficial kind of discussion. It doesn't feed you. It doesn't like contribute to becoming a whole person. It's like draining and like, I think leaves all parties involved feeling very dirty. Whereas these other kinds of events, they might draw less people, but I mean, you're going to remember that. You're going to remember, I know my students do, when they go to the, you know, the Eid dinner on campus and there's no talk about politics, really. They're just having, you know, dinner with their Muslim neighbors they never really talked to. And they get to learn a little bit about fasting. And these kinds of events are powerful and there's no arguing involved. It's just about like, experiencing the basic kindness of people. And I think that's on a grand macro scale, that's obvious a pro obviously a problem in the world and in the United States. Um, and again, not to suggest that, you know, just like being around more nice people is gonna solve our political problems. I think it's a two pronged approach is always helpful. But I think without this process of building narratives and you know, like feeding ourselves in a deeply meaningful, life-giving kind of way, we're not, we're not going to be as strong to, you know, fight these other kinds of battles. And that's really important. And I think it helps, it helps us gain allies too. If we, if we surround ourselves with, with kindness and kind people and put on events focused on kindness, uh, it may not draw the big numbers, but Again, I think the the quality is is important, and it's it's hard to measure that sometimes. Well, mashallah, I'd like to thank Dr. Bazano for uh, being on the show. Dr. Bazano, before you go, um, how can people um, reach you or follow you on uh, um, follow your work? Yeah, so the best way is you can go to my faculty webpage at uh, Lemoyne College. Uh, you can also find me on my academia.edu page if you Google my name. Uh, those two places will be among your first hits. So I think spelling my name properly is probably the easiest way with the help of Google to get in touch with me. And, and also your podcast as well, right? Yeah, and I, I host podcasts for New Books in Islamic Studies along with 
some other colleagues, Christian Peterson and Shirley Tareen, and we interview Islamic studies scholars um, from around the world about recent books that they've written. And uh, I think listeners of this program would find those programs exciting as well. Um, it's, a, I think, a healthy combination of autobiography as well as um, author reflections on the books that they've written. So you really get to know the authors as, as people. Definitely going to check that out. And uh, I recommend all the listeners to, uh, to uh, check out his podcast uh, um, as well, as well as some of your articles, which uh, I found very, very enlightening and, and very beneficial. Uh, again, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Bazzano for being on the show today. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to our podcast, please subscribe. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please leave a review. Uh, please leave a five-star reading. All of that really helps in uh, getting um, uh, this podcast out to reach uh, more listeners. We hope to uh, see you again in the next podcast. Again, you can give us your feedback by tweeting at us at uh, Iman Wired or uh, emailing us at uh, Iman Wire at almadinainstitute.org. We hope to see you again in the next episode. Peace be unto you. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, <laughs> my